All right, well, good morning and welcome to Sojourn. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. And man, what a joy it was this morning just to sing with you, to hear your voices lifted up, to praise our great God. And thankful for the guys from New City Fellowship uh, leading us this morning in worship. So thank you, brothers and sisters, for being here. And Theodore already said this, but Mason soon, so glad you guys are back. I hope you had an awesome summer. Um, we're grateful that you're here, and we're going to pray for you guys at the end of the service today and tell you about a couple of things that are going on. I just wanted to say, so thankful God has brought you here this morning. And whether you're new here or you have been here for a long time, whether you're walking closely with Jesus right now or you feel very distant from him and are not sure if he exists or cares anything about your life, uh, I'm just grateful to be able to worship with you this morning. I also just want to say thanks this morning to the brothers who've preached over the last few weeks. I had a little bit of a break from preaching with some vacation and just some time for some reading and reflection. So grateful for each of those brothers bringing God's word uh, over the last few Sundays. What a joy it is just to have different brothers within our church that, uh, that God is cultivating within them uh, a preacher's heart to be able to bring God's word to us and bless us through that. So grateful for each of you men as well. If you need a Bible this morning, if you just raise your hand, uh, a couple of guys will bring a Bible around to you. We'd love for you to have God's Word in your hand this morning so you can look at it. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Hebrews as we have been over the last few months. And if you don't actually own a copy of the Scriptures, please feel free to take that home with you. That's our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word not only on a Sunday morning as we gather as the church, but all throughout the week because it's important for your whole entire life. But as we begin our time in God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time. Lord, you reign. You reign over us. You are Lord. You are King. You're not just a Lord or a King. You are the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. When we call, you answer us. God, what a gift that you allow us to be in relationship with you, that you allow us to bring anything and everything before you and that you care deeply for us. And Father, I pray this morning that we would rest in your grace and your goodness to us. May you extend your grace and goodness to us as we open up your word to look at Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Would you just illumine our hearts and our minds? And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring life. Where there's death, would you reign over that and bring life this morning? If we're struggling with sin, Would you bring life to that dark place in our life today? We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do a surgical work with your word this morning. And we ask that you would transform us and change us because of that. And because of that, lead us to worship you, our living God. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. My family and I live in the city of Fairfax. And one of the great things about living in the city of Fairfax is our trash pickup. Now, you may think that's a little bit weird, but uh, in the city of Fairfax, you can literally put anything out on the curb and they will come pick it up. You don't have to call about it. You don't have to schedule anything for it. You can put anything out there. I'm talking broken lawnmower, refrigerator, washer and dryer, yard debris, whatever it is, if it's on the curb, it's getting picked up. But 
What if the service that they actually provided was, if I put a bunch of stuff out on my curb, let's say uh, a washer and dryer and, uh, and a broken down refrigerator, multiple full trash cans, which right now at my house are often full of smelly diapers. If I put those out on the curb and the service they provided was they didn't actually come and take that stuff away. They came and they just covered it up. Like they literally came with a big sheet or a tarp and they just covered over it. I mean, that wouldn't be very good, right? I mean, eventually it would start to smell. It'd be an eyesore to my family. It'd be an eyesore to my neighbors as well. Well, today we're jumping into Hebrews chapter 10. And as we look at these verses in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, really what this is, is the culmination of kind of the final section where the author of Hebrews is laying out this theology, this this truth about who Jesus is. That Jesus is supreme. That Jesus is great. It's the period on a robust declaration of a very simple but profound truth. Jesus is better. And the truth that the author has sought to show and reiterate and extrapolate over and over and over again in great detail. And we'll start to see in these next few chapters that he's going to to talk more about the implications of the truth that Jesus is is better. But today what we see, what he focuses in on, is something that is crucial for every single one of us, whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not. And it's the removal of sin from our lives. Not just the forgiveness of our sin, but the removal of sin from our lives. See, what we need to understand and the point the author is trying to make is that anything else Anything else that we go to in order to deal with our sin can only remind us of our sin. It can only remind us of it, not actually remove it from us. It is only through Jesus that our sin can be removed and only because of Jesus that God remembers our sin no more. See, this reality has very real implications on our life here and now and for all eternity. And so my hope today My hope today, as we dive into this text, is that by understanding the theology of it, understanding what it is that he's trying to communicate to us, that as we bask in that and rest in that, that God will help us to see and understand the truth of who you are and who you are becoming if you are in Christ. And so whether you know Jesus or you don't yet know Jesus, I want to invite you to listen and learn And see the grace that God offers to you today. So go ahead, if you haven't already, and open up to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is kind of a long chapter, and we're going to take about half of it today and look at it. So verses 1 through 18 will be the focus of our time this morning. This is what the author says. This is what God says to you today. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come... Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, 
sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. What I'd like to do this morning is first just kind of get that theological understanding, the meaning behind the text. And through this, we're going to see a few themes. We're going to see the themes of reminder, removal, and remember no more. But then I want us to look and see what that means for our lives here and now. We wouldn't just keep it up here in our heads. We wouldn't just have an understanding of it, but actually see that it has relevance and impact in our life right now. Again, we know the reason that the author is writing this letter is because a small band of Jewish Christians, and what I mean by that is ethnically Jewish people who have left Judaism and started to follow Jesus, confessing Jesus as Lord. But this group of new believers are being tempted through persecution. They're being tempted through difficulty to turn their back on Christ and go back to their old way of living life, their old way of seeking to cleanse themselves and appease their conscience. They're tempted to find their hope in something else besides Christ. And the reality is is that you and I are often tempted in the same way to find our hope in someone or something else. And the author has been pretty exhaustive so far showing that Christ is greater. Christ is better than anything religious or irreligious in our life. It doesn't matter what it is. He is our only hope. But in this text today, he comes at that same idea again, but from an additional perspective that I think is really important and helpful for us. And we see this begin to unfold in this first section of Scripture, verses 1 through 4, where he focuses on the reminder of our sin. In verse 1, he says the law is like a shadow. It gives visual representation of something, but it always points to the greater thing, not itself. If I look at an actual shadow, that's not the thing that I should be excited or focused on. It's, it's a reflection in some ways of the greater thing. And so what he's saying is, is the law is really a, a foreshadow. It's looking ahead at something greater, something better. It's saying there needs to be a better sacrifice. And a better sacrifice would come. Now why is that the case? Why is that needed? 
Well, he makes it very clear. He says because the law and its sacrificial system that we've looked at over the last few weeks, this this idea where we have to bring animals and and sacrifice them in order to cover over our sin. And, And I think what he has... In mind here, for the most part, is the Day of Atonement, that one time a year where the priest would go into the Holy of Holies before the very presence of God on behalf of the people for the forgiveness of sin for that last year. That all of those things could never make perfect those who draw near to God through them. Now the idea of perfection here is twofold. One, it's just the idea that we no longer have sin, that sin has been taken away from us. The second idea is that because of that, having our sin removed for us, we're able now to have a full and uninhibited access to God. It's the biblical idea of being righteous, being right before God, having a right relationship with God, standing right with Him. But see, we all have an inherent problem. None of us are perfect. None of us are righteous. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God is holy, and God is perfect, and God is altogether righteous. But we've rebelled against that. We've chosen to be the God of our own lives. To sit on the throne, to worship things other than God. We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and the glory of God for less glorious things. And we're all complicit. We all run after lesser lovers. And give ourselves fully to them instead of the one true lover of our soul. So what is that for you? Who is that for you? And see, whether you believe in God or don't, it doesn't change the fact, the reality that God is real. And God is righteous. He is the just judge of all. It's something I think we often don't like to talk about in culture. Something we don't, if we're honest, don't often like to talk about even within the church is the wrath of God. As one theologian says, to an age that which has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex, and self-will, the church mumbles on about God's kindness, but says virtually nothing about His judgment. See, judgment and wrath, they don't sound like pleasant things to us, and the reality is they're not pleasant. But see, God's righteous wrath isn't what we often think it is. It isn't blind rage. It doesn't come from a a capricious nature. No, it's because God is completely holy and God is completely just and he's completely good. And he can't allow rebellion and sin to not be dealt with. It's his righteous wrath against sin. Or to put it a different way, if God didn't fully deal with sin, then he wouldn't be good. And he wouldn't be just, and he wouldn't be holy. And if that was the case, then he wouldn't be worthy of our worship. But instead of acknowledging who God is, instead of acknowledging his righteous wrath against sin, too often in our world, too often in our culture, and unfortunately too often in the church, we tend to downplay that and brush it aside. And if we do that, it's to our own peril. That's our inherent problem. See, a simple truth that all of us have to grasp is this, that sin creates a barrier to relationship with God. Sin creates a barrier of a relationship with God. He can't be in relationship with us because of that. And unless our sin is dealt with and removed from us, we cannot know the living God. 
See, the author's point is that the old way, the old covenant, the constant sacrificing of animals for sin cannot do that. If, if they could, then these sacrifices would cease to be offered, he says in verse 2. Now, I don't know how you organize your life, uh, how you keep track of things. I have Apple products, so I have an iPhone and an and Apple computer, and so I just use the Reminders app on my phone. And so I put a lot of stuff in there. Anything I think of that I need to think about or do, uh, a note for a sermon, uh, following up on an email with somebody, whatever it is, I'll just put a reminder in there. But I'm not always thinking about when I'm putting that reminder. It's just like, okay, I need to put it in, put a date on it so it'll go off at some point in time. And sometimes, unfortunately, uh, what I do is I put so many reminders, different days and weeks, but they all are culminating on, let's say, Thursday afternoon at three o'clock. And so all of a sudden, if I'm on my computer, my phone, it just starts blowing up at me making dinging noises at me. All of these things on my screen that I said I needed to accomplish, I needed to do. But when we look at that, when I see that, what, what actually happens? They, they point to the need, but they don't bring about the solution. They don't actually accomplish the task at hand. They just remind me that there's something that needs to get done. See, if the sacrifice of bulls and goats was sufficient to cleanse us in our conscience, then we would be good to go. But what it does instead is just serve only as a constant reminder of our sin and our inability to fix our greatest problem. See, you and I need a real and lasting remedy, not just a reminder. Now, you and I, I'm guessing, don't know everybody in the room, but we don't offer sacrifices of bulls and goats anymore. So we look at this and we think, okay, what's going on here? But whether you consider yourself religious or irreligious, I think we all at times do things to try and appease and cleanse our conscience. To make ourselves right. Either before the one true God that we seek to follow or the God of self if we reject the idea of God altogether. So what is it for you when you're reminded of your sin? When, when you are reminded of the evil that's within you, those dark spots in your life, what do you do to deal with it? For some, it's doing things good things to try and outweigh or kind of counterbalance the bad in our life. For some, it's making promises and resolutions to never do that thing again. For some, it's walking through religious motions and movements. For some, it's punishing yourself physically or mentally or emotionally. For some, it's, it's escaping through busyness or substances, maybe relationships, sex, work, your kids. But no matter what it is, it's rooted in self-solution that doesn't actually solve anything. If you go on Amazon right now and search, if you type into the search bar self-help books, there are 676,000 books that pop up. That's insane. 676,000 books that are, that are classified as self-help. Our culture is full of figurative sacrificial bulls and goats to make our lives better here and now, to appease our conscience, to help us be okay with ourselves. And maybe some of it works for a little while, but all it really is is a numbing facade, not a lasting solution all of those things, all they're, they're likely to do, more likely to do, is just lead to apathy more than healing and restoration, to distraction than to real relationship with the real and living God, to despair 
instead of an abundant life. These sacrifices or whatever it is that you do to try and have a clean heart and conscience is the difference in covering up the trash on my curb and actually removing it and taking it away. You may be able to see it, but you can also kind of ignore it because it's kind of covered up. Maybe also just kind of put it out of your mind, not pay much attention to it. But the reality is it's still there. So no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what the world says about you, one thing is true for every single one of us. We all need our biggest problem to be taken away, and we need someone else to do it for us because we can't do it on our own. Which leads to the next theme that we see unfold in this text in the next section of Scripture, verses 5 through 14, and that's the idea of removal. Again, we can insert whatever it is that you do on your own to appease your conscience. Whatever it is, though, cannot take away your sin. These animal sacrifices, they symbolized payment for sin, but they didn't actually pay for sin. Why is that? Because they didn't have a righteous life. The reason that you and I are separated from God is because of our rebellion, because we are unrighteous. And God can't be in relationship with you or with me unless we have a fully righteous life. But animals don't have a righteous life. And so we needed something better. We needed something greater. We needed an exchange, a representative, a substitute who was completely righteous and pure to stand in the place of those that are unrighteous and impure. All of those sacrifices were always meant to be a picture of a greater needed reality. Or as one scholar puts it, a permanent sacrifice is needed to deal permanently with sin. And so the author, as he has has throughout the book of Hebrews, points us to the one who is greater. He points us to Jesus. And to do that, though, he quotes from Psalm 40 in this text, and he puts the words of Psalm 40 in Jesus' mouth. Let me read them again for us. Thinking about, this is Christ saying this, sacrifices and offerings, you, talking to God, you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, Jesus says. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I, Jesus saying, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. See, Psalm 40 shows us that God desired faithful hearts more than outward religiosity. Because it's out of the heart that we live. It's out of the heart that we love. It's out of the heart that we worship. In verse 8 and 9 make it clear that the sacrifices of the law were always meant to point toward the need for a better and greater sacrifice and Savior. See, for you and I to have faithful hearts, we have to have new hearts. And Jesus brings that about. Christ came physically laying down his life for us in order to do just that, to give you a new heart and a new life. And in verse 10, we see a key verse here, a key truth. He says, and by that will, by God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By God's will, his will was to send his son to be savior of the world. And through Christ's actions of faithfulness and the sacrificial death, once for all, we have been sanctified. To be sanctified, excuse me, to be sanctified means to be set apart. It means to to be made holy. 
When he's talking about being set apart for right worship, where no longer our eyes and our hearts are set on ourselves or the things of this world, but they're rightly set on God and our worship is given only to him. Instead of offering sacrifices for sin now, you and I get to offer sacrifices of praise. We get to come before the Lord with a life and love devoted to the God who made you and saved you. The priests, he says in verse 11, they can never sit down from their work because their work was never done. It never removed the presence and the stain of sin and the effect of sin in your life. They were constantly up and moving around. But what does he say in verse 12? He says, but when Jesus offered up himself, when he rose again from the grave, he sat down at the right hand of God. But he doesn't sit down inactive. He sits down to intercede for you to intercede for his people, those who have come to realize and believe that Jesus is indeed their only hope now and forever. And in verse 13, we see because of all that, he is victorious. He's waiting for all of his enemies, for all of sin and death that still remain in this world and the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God to be put as a footstool under his feet. Man, feet are nasty, Right? In the, in the day and age of Jesus' time, people's feet were constantly dirty. He's saying, my feet rest on that stuff. It's under me. It's a footstool. And it's only in Christ and Christ alone that is declared that it is finished. He has the victory. But that leads to the amazing truth of verse 14 then. For by that single offering, by Jesus' offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And do you see it? Our biggest problem has been dealt with. Our imperfection separated us from God, but through Christ we are perfected. How? Because Jesus took on the wrath of God for our sin and took away our sin. He paid for the penalty of our sin and he removed it from us, but you know what? It didn't stop there. He also gave us his perfect life. He gave us his perfect life. See, something I think we need to try and wrap our minds around is that the blessing of the gospel is not simply that you're forgiven of your sin, but also that you're made a new creation, a new person. That your sin is actually removed, not just covered up. It's taken away from you. And because of that, you are made like Jesus and you get to know and be with God forever. See, when you place your faith and your hope in Christ, when you lay down every other means and way of making yourself whole or appeasing God or your conscience, then you'll be able to experience restoring and ongoing grace in your lives. Because you notice what he says in verse 14. He says, you have been perfected and are being sanctified. You have been, it's done, and you are being, it's ongoing. This is the idea of what's called progressive sanctification and positional sanctification. In other words, positionally before God, you are seen as perfect because of Christ's perfect life. It has been credited to you. When God looks at you now, he sees Christ's perfect life. If you've placed your faith in him, he's taken all of your sin from you and he's credited that to you. And so God sees you that way, positionally before the holy God. That's how he sees you, perfect. But God, by his grace, is also working that perfection out in you to make you more and more like Jesus right now. 
The gospel is not just something for a later point in time when you die or Jesus comes back. It has relevance for your life now because Jesus takes away your sin. So the things that God loves, you begin to love more and more. And the things that God hates, you begin to hate more and more. See, the cross of Christ has benefit and blessing now and forever. It's the, it's the present power of past events. Nothing besides Christ can enable you to become more like Christ. To be conformed to his image. Church, this is why Christianity and the gospel of Jesus is the only good news. Every other philosophical way of thinking about life or world religion does not take away your sin or pay for it. It's only Jesus that does that. It's only Jesus. But in removing your sin, we also see that God now remembers it no more. Which is the last theme we see in verses 15 through 18. The author brings up the promise of Jeremiah 31 again. He did that in Hebrews chapter 8. And here again, he, he brings that promise up to drive his point home. Look at verses 16 and 17. He's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. We have to remember that he wrote this, that Jeremiah wrote those words hundreds of years before Christ was born. The author of Hebrews is saying, why would you want to go back to anything besides Jesus? This is it. He has done this work. Through Christ's perfect sacrifice for our sin, God remembers your sin no more. Is that, is that crazy to anyone else besides me? Like to try and wrap my mind around the fact that the God who knows all things doesn't remember my sin anymore. That when he looks at me, he's not seeing me through the lens of my sin. He's seeing me clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's crazy. Last week, Eric preached, and he had a great line. He says, Jesus makes sin invalid. He makes sin in your life invalid. It doesn't have the power it used to over your life. And the good news about that is that though you and I will continue to struggle with sin as God is working that perfection out in us, God doesn't throw it in our face. He doesn't throw it in our face over and over again. He doesn't speak any longer a word of judgment over you, but he speaks a better word of a better covenant, enacted on better promises. He speaks a word of grace, and he says to you, I will be your God, and you will be my people. As one pastor says, God has spoken in his Son, and he has no word to speak beyond him. See, where there is forgiveness of sins, church, there is no longer any offering for it. It means there's nothing else that you need to do to appease your conscience. There's nothing else you need to do to make yourself whole except look to Christ. In Jesus we have it. It is finished. You are cleansed. And he remembers your sin no more. Hallelujah. Yeah, amen. What an amazing truth for your soul today. Because my fear is, is that there's probably a lot of us in this room that we can mouth those words. We can talk about those words. We can even write them down. We can tell other people about them, but then the day-to-day -day of our life, we just don't believe it to be true. And so there's other things that you do. There's other things you gravitate towards to actually appease your conscience, to make yourself feel whole again. But see, the benefit of Christ's saving work in your life 
and in the life of this redeemed community. It's extraordinary, and he's going to unpack that more and more over the next few chapters of Hebrews, but it isn't just a nice, nice piece of theology. I don't want you to walk out and be like, wow, that's crazy. I see how God does all those things, and then kind of leave it there. Because what this text is doing, it, it has implications for your life right here and now. It's about who you are and who you're becoming. Who you are and who you are becoming. My middle son, Isaac, oftentimes I'll, I'll joke around with him and I'll, I'll act like I don't remember his name. Like, oh, you're Frank, right? Or, 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 you're, or you're George, right? Or you're Herbert Ninninger, which is a character on Curious George, in case you know what that is. And he always says to me, no, I'm Isaac. Like he, I think he legitimately thinks I don't remember his name. So he's like, no, I am Isaac. That's who he is. It's he knows who he is. And so he says that to me over and over again. And we laugh and have a good time. But let me ask you this morning, who are you? What are you defined by? If you're a Christian, are you confident in who you are? No matter what lies the enemy or your flesh might throw your way. Because the truth of this text and the truth of Hebrews fundamentally changes everything for you. Most significantly, it changes your identity. Listen to me, you are not identified by your sin. You are not identified by your sin. Galatians 2.20 says that you have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives within you. What this means is that if you are in Christ, if you're united to Jesus... Hebrews 6 says that as Christ died, we died. As Christ was raised from the grave, we too were raised from the grave. If you're united to him, your identity is fundamentally no longer a sinner, but a saint. Do you believe that today? Because that's how God views you. That's how God looks at you. He sees you as perfect, as fully righteous as a saint, as holy, as set apart. But how do you view yourself? How do, how do you view your brothers and sisters around you? When they struggle with sin or they sin against you, how do you view others in community? When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Do, do you see a marred image of a broken down sinner? Or do you see a redeemed child of the Most High God? See, the law that these early Christians were tempted to go back to, or, or whatever it is, whatever method of appeasing your heart, your soul, your conscience, whether it's distraction or numbing or self-punishment, all of those things only look backwards. They only look backwards. It's like trying to move forward in life, but only looking in the rearview mirror of your car. You're looking in that mirror. You're trying to move this way, but all you see is what's behind you. How many of you are walking around defined by your sin right now? That you keep track of time based off the last time you sinned in that way? It's been a week. It's been a month. It's been a day. It's been five minutes. You're looking in the rearview mirror. You're looking behind you. You're defining your life by what's behind you. And in real life, if you try to drive a car like that, Like if all you do is just laser lock your eyes on the rearview mirror, you're going to run off the road in a ditch and maybe hit a tree. There's no life in that. It's only death. But see, we need to see 
We have Jesus, and Jesus fully engulfs all of your life on every plane of your life. The past, the present, and the future. The gospel of Jesus is full-orbed. It like swallows up your whole life. And oftentimes I think we put the gospel back here when we get saved, and then we have this period of time in between in our life, and the gospel's over here for when I die. But we don't see what it's doing right here and now. The Christ is continuing to take that away, that you are perfected before God. The gospel fully engulfs your life. It deals with all of your sin then, now, and in the future. So where are you looking? Are you looking behind you? Or upward to your Savior who sits next to the right hand of God? He sits there. He sits there because he has accomplished all things. He has paid for all of your sin and he has taken it all away. See, when we look to Jesus, we are reminded of our sin. And it should cause godly grief in your life. This is not a call to ignore that, to say it's not that big of a deal. Sin at any point in time is offensive to our holy God. And so when we look to Jesus, the holy and perfect Jesus, our sin should cause us grief. We're reminded of it. But then we keep looking to him. And as we continue to look to him, we're not just reminded of our sin, but of its removal. God remembers it no more. Reminder, removal, remember no more. Man, what a truth. If we believe that, what a truth that would just help to transform our thinking and our life. How much joy would that bring to your life if every single moment, if every single day you remembered that reality? Do we encourage one another to that end? Do we spend more time reminding ourselves and one another of our sin or our Savior who took it all away once and for all? Because see, church, this text in Hebrews resounds with the truth of the New Testament that all of us need to be reminded of on a regular basis that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Those are definitive truths and realities about you. That is who you are. New creation in Christ, not defined by your sin, but what Christ has done for you. That is true if you're you're in Christ. It's true if Jesus is your only hope. So let me be clear with you this morning. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, if you have not confessed that Jesus is Lord, then your sin remains and you are still under the righteous wrath of God. But it doesn't have to be that way for you today. Today, you can place your faith in Christ. Today, you can be declared righteous before God because of what Christ has done for you. Today, you can be set free. So pray and ask God, even in this moment, to save you from your sin, not because of anything that you have done, but wholly and completely because of what Christ has done for you. Come empty-handed and come to Jesus today. For those of you that are in Christ, Hebrews 10, 1-18 tells you who you are. In the sight of God, you have been sanctified and are perfected. But it also tells you who you're becoming. Who you're becoming. You have been sanctified and are being sanctified. You have been declared perfect and are being made perfect. You are a new creation, but you still struggle with sin. Before God, you were declared righteous, but he's still working that out in you. 
He set you free from sin, and now He is changing you from one degree of glory to another. He has begun a good work in you, and He is now working on bringing it to completion. And the means of that, from beginning to end, is still the same. It's the grace of God in Christ who removes sin from you. It's the hope of glory. It's the promise that when you see Jesus, you'll be made fully like Him. It's God's grace that allows you and trains you now to now, in your life right now, to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age as you wait for your blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself up for you to redeem you and purify you. See, before Christ, you were not able not to sin. But now, because of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice for sin, you are still able to sin, but you're also able to say no to sin. God's given you the power and the ability to resist sin, to be free to resist it. Romans 6 says sin no longer has dominion over you. And one day, you'll not be able to sin at all. But now we wait. And as we wait, we pursue holiness and purity of heart and mind and life. But we do it not because it gets us something. We do it because we have been given everything in Jesus. And we want to worship our redeeming God with our redeemed lives. See, it's in this pursuit of holiness and obedience, of becoming who you are, that you know you belong to him. In other words, those who have been saved by Jesus cannot go on living as they did before. God will change you. God is working in you. And sometimes it just doesn't happen in the the timing that we would like. But he is doing that work and he is faithful to bring it about. And so the posture of your heart, the call of Hebrews 10 then, is not to turn back. Not to turn back to other people or other things that pull you away from the living God or to stay where you're at. To say, I'm good right now. No, it's to press in and pursue Christ and Christ's likeness in every part of your life. In this week, in your life, when sin creeps up, when sin creeps in your life, and it will, when you're irritable or angry, when you lash out at your kids or your spouse or the stranger on the road in front of you is going too slow, when you're prideful or greedy, fearful or unkind, when you gossip or tear someone else down, when you look at that image on the screen that is not glorifying to God or good for your soul, when you are selfish and self-focused, can I encourage you this week to cry out to God? Cry out to God and say, God, finish the work you've begun in me. Finish the work you've begun in me. Believing that because of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice and the removal of that sin and the perfection that is already secured, he will one day do just that. You are not defeated. You fight your sin from a place of victory, not your own, Jesus' victory. He doesn't call you to be victorious. He already took care of that for you. He calls you to follow him now. See, Hebrews 10 1 through 18 leaves no room to boast in your own strength or ability. It's quite the opposite. This is not the boast of the strong. This is the cry of the weak who understand their constant need for a Savior and His saving grace. 
See, sojourn, Jesus purchased permanent perfection for you. He did it. Nothing else can do that. Everything else in your life only reminds you of your sin. Only Jesus can remove it, and now God remembers it no more. So, now, in your security of your standing, walk in obedience and holiness to the glory of, the God, a glory of God who saves you and for the good of your very own soul. Brothers and sisters, be who you are and pursue who you are becoming. There's not a much better way to begin to do that than to come to the table to take communion. To come to the table with one another and sing the truths of God's radical and scandalous grace. To sing those praises to him and over one another. See, when we come to the table, when we come together, we come forward both as people who stand perfected in God's sight and as people who need that perfection to continue to be worked out in our lives. We come forward as saints, set apart and holy, who at the same time are also messy and called to pursue holiness. This meal is a reminder of your sin, its removal, and the lack of remembrance by our gracious God because of what Christ has done for us all. So let me invite you to come forward this morning, eating the bread a picture of Christ's body given for you, and drinking the cup, a picture of Christ's blood shed for you. And then let's celebrate in song. Let's sing loudly and joyfully together because he has taken away all of your sin. And those of you that are not followers of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward to take communion today because this is our declaration that Jesus is our only hope. And so if you don't yet know Christ, we want to invite you just to hang out in your seat. And as I said earlier, to, to invite Jesus to save you today, to ask him to save you. And pray to God to ask him to reveal himself to you. So if you don't yet know Christ, just hang out in your seat. People are going to be moving around. They won't even notice you're doing that. Just have some time with the Lord and implore you to come to Christ today. If you have questions about what it looks like to know Jesus or follow Jesus, let somebody around you know this morning. So we can journey with you in that. And those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or the back. Tear off a piece of bread. Take a cup to drink. And hear the words of what Christ has done for you, spoken over you today. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning and we praise your name. We praise your name because even as we are confronted with and reminded of our sin on a daily basis as we wrestle with the fact that we are not yet who you've called us to be. We praise you, God, because we know that through you, through what Christ has done for us, you have removed our sin from us, that in your sight we are declared righteous and perfect, that you are faithful to continue to sanctify us, to make us more and more like Jesus. So Lord, I pray for each person in this room, myself included, that you would help us, that you would help me not to look to other people or other things to try and make myself feel better, to try and make, to try and deal with sin in my life, that I would only and always look to Jesus. And Lord, help us as a church family, a community, to be more willing and more ready to remind ourselves not of the sin that remains, but the Savior who takes it away that we would grieve over sin in our life, but we would pick one another up to pursue holiness to the praise of your name and the good of our own soul and the good of this community and this city. We praise you today, Father, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.